the great theologian Rick Ross said, the devil is a lie. Now, that's a joke if you didn't get it because you don't know hip-hop, and that's fine. Rick Ross is a Miami rapper. He wrote a song called The Devil is a Lie. Now, you don't need to know the song to know that that's a lie because you need to think about this. That, that was the whole hook of this song. But wouldn't you think that the perfect tactic of the enemy would be to convince people that he doesn't exist? Are you with me? Wouldn't that be a main tactic of the enemy? Say, hey, hey, uh, I don't exist. Because what? You don't resist or stand against someone that you don't believe exists. So James 4, Ryan read those verses 7 through 10. We're actually going to camp in verse 7 today. We split it up this week. Verse 7, James 4, verse 7. Look at it with me. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, if you haven't been with us, that therefore is connecting to what he's been saying in chapter 4. And what we saw last week is that God is a faithful and jealous and gracious husband. So because of that, because of who he is, submit to him. To submit to our faithful, gracious, loving husband. Now, to submit is to put ourselves under the lordship of Christ, to put ourselves under his lordship and commit to obey him in all things, that he is the sovereign Lord, the one who supremely rules all things, controls all things, the one that not only has the perfect plans, but also the power to execute all of those plans. So submit to the Lord. Why? He's holy and just and overflowing with faithful love. And so, so we're to recognize, when, we, when he says submit to God, he's saying we're to recognize God's lordship and actively place ourselves in glad submission to his wise rule. Did you hear that sentence? To place ourselves under his lordship in glad submission to his rule. Do you know a phrase that happens often in my family, in my household? Obey. Obey means to uh, do all that is expected of you joyfully, wait, cheerfully, wait, I'm going to mess it up, cheerfully, thoroughly, and immediately. That's genuine submission. Not delayed obedience, not begrudging obedience, but this glad submission to his wise rule. Well, what does his wise rule mean? We've seen it throughout James. Wise rule of God means that he knows more than you and he knows better than you. Most of us don't contend that he knows more than us. We, are, we will maybe accept that. But we often think we know better than him in our functional practice on a Tuesday afternoon. We've got this. We know the best way. We know the best decision in this moment. Now, he knows more and better. He is creator. We are creation. Now this section, verse 10, concludes with humble yourselves under, uh, uh, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So these two statements create an inclusio. It just creates this front end and back end. And then everything in between it is just connected to that. To submitting to God and humbling ourselves before God. And as I've been saying throughout James, 
This is the culmination of this book, this section in chapter four. Because up to this point, James has rebuked favoritism, discrimination, domineering, slandering, gossiping, uh, evil desires within us, our inordinate desires. They were good desires, but they become so uh, overwhelming that they've taken the place of God on the throne in our heart. He's rebuked all these things, and then he's got to James 4, and he said, in all these things, repent. That's what he's describing here, commanding here in chapter 4. Repent, turn from, and turn to. Now, in this verse, to submit to God means to turn from the devil and turn to God. To submit to God, resist the devil. Now, if to submit means to place ourselves under God's authority, then that also means that we refuse to bow down to the devil's authority. That's what it means to resist, to refuse to bow down. We could say we unsubmit to the devil and submit to God. We turn from the devil's footholds and lies and temptations in our lives and believe God's word and experience his grace. So he says, submit to God, resist the devil. That word resist means to stand against or oppose, or withstand. You see it clearly used again in Ephesians 6, 11, when Paul says, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. This is what James is saying as well. Resist, stand against. One of the devil's primary purposes is to separate God and man. To separate you from God. But James says and promises when you resist the devil, he will flee from you. I want you to hear this clearly because some of you probably feel a little weirded out or scared talking about this at all. When we talk about the reality of the demonic, when we use Paul's language of cosmic forces and the darkness of powers... But whatever power Satan may have, if you're in Christ, you can be absolutely certain that you have been given the ability to overcome that power. I want you to hear that. Absolutely certain that you've been given the ability to overcome that power. But before we really take a deep dive into this, this being spiritual warfare, I want to address two typical groups in this room, two typical groups in this room in regards to, to spiritual warfare. First group is this. Some of you guys don't believe in uh, spiritual warfare at all because functionally you're a naturalist, right? That's the, that's the, uh, the predominant worldview in the Western world is that we can only, the only the things that we can touch, see, taste, smell, those are things that are real. If we can't do that, then it's not real. So there's nothing beyond what we can describe, define, or scientifically prove by the scientific method. So anything that, that's uh, unseen, invisible, is not reality. Everything will be just explained by natural causes. But the Bible and the biblical worldview is thoroughly supernatural. God controls all phenomenon. 
and all so-called natural laws. And angels do his bidding. He tells angels to do things, and they do them. And demons actively oppose God's kingdom. And healing and miracles and the, the gifts of the Spirit are a reality. And so I've, I've said a few times these past few weeks not to minimize our sin. Can we also not minimize spiritual warfare? Like, will you be more formed by how you grew up in a naturalistic worldview, or will you be formed by what God says to you? That this is a reality. You can deny it. You can minimize it. It's not going to change it. It is a reality. Now, there's another group of you that you don't want to talk about this. You don't want to mess with spiritual warfare uh, because you're worried about being coming a fanatic or being associated with fanatics, right? Like we've all seen the extremes and excesses of deliverance ministry where someone gets angry and yells and takes off their coat and whips it at people so they knock to the floor, right? And then we take a very popular rock song and mesh it with that and we let the bodies hit the floor. Really good, right? It's a good video. But that's what we think of. We think, oh no, like I don't want to be connected with that or seen like that or, or get caught up in that. But what I've said in other areas applies here. The right response to the abuse of any biblical practice is not disuse of that practice, but the proper use of that practice. We can't respond to people that say that there's a demon behind every rock and say, no, there's no demons behind any rocks. We just throw it out. No, we can't do that. Like Dr. Gary Bashir's, we have to say, there's not a demon behind every rock, but there's some demons behind some rocks. There is. You can't read the Bible and not agree with that. I mean, you, I guess you can't. That's where we're at. What I'm saying is, you must not. <laughs> you can't. You shouldn't. It's just such a reality. And this is a command in James 4. Up to this point, he hasn't alluded to any other spiritual warfare, but he's very clear in this call to repentance, it's going to include submit to God and resist the devil. So, with those two groups hopefully addressed a bit, what is the enemy? Who is the enemy? How do they attack? And how can we resist? How can we stand against? Well, I'll tell you, I'm going to lean on a dear pastor and brother of mine, Sam Storms. In his book, Understanding Spiritual Warfare, this is where he kicks it off. He says, the first thing to remember about Satan is that he, like all other angels, was created at a point in time. Satan is not eternal. He's a finite creature. He is God's devil. Satan is not the equal and opposite power of God. Contradualism. His power is not infinite. He does not possess divine attributes. In sum, he is no match for God. So we first meet the devil in the Garden of uh, Eden. And what does he do? He comes and he throws doubt on what God has said to Adam and Eve. Saying, did God really say that? And then he lies to Adam and Eve about what's going to happen. 
that the Hebrew word for Satan literally means the adversary, the adversary. So when you're saying Satan, if someone says it, you should think the adversary, that's who he is. In Psalm 109, it has the sense of accuser. Now in the New Testament, when you see the word devil, that literally means slanderer or accuser. And then John 8:44, Jesus states that the devil is a liar. That's his very nature. And he is the father of lies. So you take all this together and you just see clearly that Satan is all about defaming God and lying to you and accusing you and shaming you. He is a liar and the father of all lies. So let's, let's, let's think about this. What does this look like? How does this play out? Well, he lies to God about us, right? That's where he's called the accuser of the brethren. Constantly lying. Look at their sin. Look how terrible they are. Look at, they, they, they don't love you. Look at Job. He only loves you because of what you've given him. He's the accuser of the brethren. Continually lying to God about us. He lies to us about God. See that with Adam and Eve. See that in Matthew 4 with Jesus' temptation. And he lies to you about yourself. I love this line by Sam Storms. Particularly, he seeks to undermine and subvert your knowledge of who you are in Christ. Loves to lie to you. Loves to lie to you. So I, I want to help you in this. I want to help us resist. Some of us are like brand new to this conversation. Some of us are decades deep. But we all need to continue to grow in this, to be equipped to fight, to resist, to stand against. So let me think about this. Let me help you think about this. There is often, I'm not going to say always, there's often a difference, a delineation between I and you. There's a delineation between I and you. It's all right. Now think about if that ain't spiritual for I don't know what is. That's never happened in the life of our church. I was telling Joel and Danielle about some stuff last night, or asking them about some stuff, and, and they just started praying for us, praying for us throughout the night, knowing this is where we're heading, <laughs> to talk about the demonic. So what do you do when you agitate your enemy? Yeah. Now let me help you think about the delineation between I and you. And what I mean is I want you to discern the different voices that you hear. Often we talk to ourselves, I, I made a mistake. I should have took that turn. What was I thinking, right? That's how we typically talk to yourself. Now, if you start hearing the second person, you know what that typically means. Someone's speaking to you. Speaking to you. So if it's not you speaking to yourself, then who's speaking to you? And if you're hearing it in your mind, you've really got two options. The triune God or the enemy. So what I've heard throughout the years in counseling and caring for people is a ton of lies. And these are the lies, some of the lies I've heard. You're dirty. You're damaged goods. 
No one will ever love you. Freedom isn't for you. Your sin can't be forgiven. Why do you trust the God who doesn't protect you? You're going to sexually assault your child. Are you really going to believe the Bible is God's word? You will always be a mess up. Now, can we adopt those lies and maybe say them to ourselves? Of course. But I want you to think, what kind of tone does it have? And what's the goal of those statements? The enemy is lying to you to shame you, to condemn you, to accuse you. Ephesians 6, 17, Paul says, In every situation, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And so when you're hearing these lies from the enemy, how do you extinguish these flaming darts? By faith in who God is and what he says and what he says about you. That's how. I mean, this is what Jesus did, right, in Matthew 4. When the Satan, when the accuser tried to attack him, what did he do? Now, I'm going to believe, not you, but God, what my father says, and I'm going to wield God's word against you. So these three times, what does Jesus respond with? Quotations from Scripture each time. Why? It's his sword. It's the sword of the Spirit. This is the weapon given to you to fight the attacks of the enemy. So by faith, we extinguish the lies, and by the word, we fight the enemy. So this is how I, I do this so often with individuals, is I encourage them, take a sheet of paper and give me four columns. So give me four columns. First column, write out lies. Okay? This is your column for lies. What are the lies you're hearing from the enemy? You're dirty. Write it down. You're dirty. You're damaged goods. You're worthless. Okay? The second column, consequences, meaning what are the consequences if you believe that lie? So if you believe you're dirty, you're damaged, you're worthless, what's that going to do in you? How's that going to affect you? It's going to affect your relationships. Probably like Adam and Eve, you're going to hide in shame. You're going to run from God, not run to him. You're not going to maybe be vulnerable and open up yourself to others because of how you feel. You may not entrust yourself to another person. There's so many consequences if you believe just that one lie. And they'll say, okay, write that out. Not, not the possible consequences. Like, what have the actual consequences in your life been from believing this lie? And then pick up the sword and fight. Third column, go to truth. The counter-truth from Scripture not a random platitude that was put on a wall art or a mug. Go to scripture like Jesus and quote it and write it down. You're dirty. No, I'm clean. Jesus is my redeemer who has washed me clean. Made me whiter than snow. I'm going to write this down. This is what I'm going to believe. This is what I'm going to wield against the enemy. And then what's the consequences of believing the truth? Joy, worship, 
healing, the ability to move more and more into relational intimacy with others. So many good consequences of believing the truth here. We resist the enemy by believing the truth. This is what he means to stand against, to oppose. We resist. That's the first one. Now, not only does the enemy lie to you, in his lies, he also loves to shame you and accuse you, condemn you. All again to separate you from God, or to separate you from God, for us from God. Now, shame is a powerful feeling. But if you stay in that shame, believing you're worthless or you have no value because of who you are, the enemy takes a foothold in your life, an opportunity, as Ephesians 4 says. Because when we feel shame for what we've done or what has been done against us, we run from God out of fear of his disdain or contempt. We don't run to his gracious arms. We run and hide like Adam and Eve and try to cover our shame with fig leaves. So this, this feeling of shame, the solution for shame, isn't what the world does, which is just celebrate sin. That's the way to try to get rid of your shame. If you can say that the sin is not a problem, then you don't have to feel any shame for it. And it's also not what many of us do is minimize our sin, shame, to try to get away from that shame. The solution for the shame on your soul is forgiveness. That's the solution. The solution is found in only one place, the cross of Christ, where he took all of our shame upon himself and took the judgment we deserve for our sin upon himself and died for it. Colossians 2.13 powerfully states this. And when you were dead and trespassed in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. The enemy wants to shame you and remind you of every sin you've committed, condemning you that you are beyond redemption, you're hopeless, you're helpless, you're no value to God or others, but God forgives. All the enemy's accusations against you were nailed to the cross where Jesus disarms the enemy, takes the weapon out of his hand, and, and where the enemy is trying to disgrace and shame Jesus, it's actually there on the cross that Jesus disgraces the enemy. Christ on the cross is the victor. That, that's why in this, this action, this fight of spiritual warfare, I encourage people to keep short sin accounts. You resist the devil by confessing and repenting of your sin to God, believing the gospel and experiencing his forgiveness. What do I mean? Ephesians 4, Paul says it this way, be angry and do not sin. 
Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And don't give the devil an opportunity. An opportunity. Some of your translations read foothold, right? Like your willful, unrepentant, and unresolved sin gives the devil the ability to put his foot in the doorway so you can't close the door. And this willful, unresolved, unrepentant sin can increase our vulnerability to demonic attack. To give the enemy a foothold, a way in. To expand and intensify our sinful choices. Now, now we're not going to emphasize the enemy's work in our life to the chagrin or to the minimization of sin and the flesh, uh, sin and the world. The Bible is clear; it's all three, right? So, we're, when we're talking about sin, we're not going to say, "Oh, yeah, the devil made me do it," right? Like that's not our repentance, right? But in our is there temptation from the enemy? Of course. Will he intensify and energize your sinful choices and root you on like a cheerleader to say, keep going that way? Of course. Yes, go for it. Keep choosing that. That's great. Worship that. Like he's going to keep cheerleading you on to go down that path. Maybe even intensify the immediate gratification or the pleasure of that sin so that you get wired to think this is so good, this is so good, this is so good. But we resist the devil by being quick to confess and repent. That we don't have this backlog of 40 sins that are unaddressed. We actually deal with them as we go. We don't keep just leaving the door open and then wondering why robbers keep taking our TV. What is happening? Shut it and lock it. Put the alarm on. We're not going to give an opportunity for the devil to influence us, to mess with us. Now, the enemy is sneaky because I told you he's a liar, but his lies are sneaky because he gives them in such a way that they're half true. So it has a little bit of like, oh, this sounds good. So he'll say things like, you're sinful, you're a mess. And we're like, yeah, that's kind of true. But the gospel truth is that we are more sinful than we think and more loved by God than we can imagine. That's the whole truth. If you're in Christ, that's the whole truth. 1 John 4, 9 says, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. And Ephesians tells us that the Holy Spirit strengthens us to trust the love of God for us. And experience the love of God for us. So I know we're just looking at verse 7 of James 4, but we got a lot here, right? A lot to consider. A lot to walk through. Especially if you've not addressed this at all. You need to see this robust picture of spiritual warfare uh, in the Bible, in reality, so that what you can stand against. This is an obsession with the demonic. This isn't something where we're going to throw in and think about it all the time. It's something, though, that we need to be aware of the enemy's schemes and tactics so that we can resist. With these lies and accusations and the shaming and this condemning, a lot of it comes down to identity. 
a lot of spiritual warfare comes down to identity. And so what I mean by number three, we resist the devil by embracing our identity in Christ. Family, can I remind you of some good news? Your value and your identity are not determined by your sin or the sin done against you or what others have said to you or what others have said about you. That one maybe lingering phrase from your mom or dad or a kid when you're a child that still haunts you in your mind, that doesn't define you. Your value and identity are determined by being an image bearer of God and what Christ has done to you and for you. You're a son and daughter of the Father. That's when I get to that truth column. So much is typically rooted in identity. This is the truth so much fighting the lies. You're a true son and daughter of the Father. You are truly known and fully loved by God. You stand before the Father in Christ's righteousness, clean and blameless. That's how he sees you. You were purchased by Jesus' blood. You're not your own. You're not powerless to change. You've been given a new heart. And you've been given the Holy Spirit to be in you and with you. The accusations of the enemy don't define you. Christ's victory defines you. Romans 8, 37, Paul says, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. All right. I'm going to read this again with hopefully some verbal affirmation of this reality. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. I think why so much of us don't want to deal with spiritual warfare because we think we're, we're under or getting beat up by the enemy and we have no power in this. Paul is saying, no, we're more than conquerors through Jesus. More than conquerors. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers. Does that include the devil? Does that include the demons? Yes nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. More than conquerors through Jesus. Fully loved in Jesus. So we resist the devil, the enemy, by embracing our identity in Christ. This is who we are. I don't believe your trash of what you tell me. I'm going to believe what God says to me. And what God says about me. And who God has made me. <clears throat> now we've highlighted a lot of conflict in chapter 4. Trying to work through some interpersonal conflict. Or equipping us to grow in this conflict. Now think about conflict in this way. What does conflict, or what does spiritual warfare look like often in the realm of conflict with others? Number one thing that I'm aware of. Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. The enemy hates forgiveness. The enemy 
loves unforgiveness and energizes it. Again, my friend Sam Storms. The willful refusal to forgive, together with the incessant nurturing of one's heart of bitterness, anger, and resentment toward the offending party, often leads to severe cases of both spiritual oppression and demonization. You can read the rest, but I just wanted to pause there to see if you feel the weight of that. That's a serious claim. He said, it isn't hard to figure out why. Once we realize that unforgiveness breeds every kind of sin, unkindness, and even despair. What exacerbates conflict, what prolongs conflict, what, what gives the enemy a foothold in your life further and in a foothold in this relationship? Bitterness, unforgiveness. Hebrews 12, 15 puts it this way. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God. And this, that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. I don't know how you read those last two words other than spiritual warfare. Causing trouble and defiling many. So we put away bitterness and forgive as God and Christ forgave us. Forgiveness means absorbing the pain from that hurt, from that wound from them. It means committing to not bringing it up again and throwing it back in their face. It means we resolve to not seek revenge. Justice, yes. I'll nuance that. But not revenge. Forgiveness means we resolve to do them good rather than evil. It means we cancel the debt they owe us and long to love them again. So if you take an honest assessment of your heart and your relationships, I think this is the biggest place of spiritual warfare in our relationships and our conflicts. And I'm, I'm, again, I'm not trying to give you things to weaponize against other people. I'm trying to give you things so that you can assess your heart and do work with God. Not to just start thinking about, yeah, my dad's very unforgiving. No, no, I'm saying, let, let's, us, you, deal with this. This bitterness, this forgiveness in us. And close the door on the enemy. No foothold. So we resist the enemy by believing the truth. We resist the enemy by being quick to confess and repent. Repent. We resist the enemy by embracing our identity of Christ. We resist the enemy by forgiving others. And last one, and maybe save the best for last. We resist the enemy by exercising our authority in Christ. This is a, maybe a strange one, because this is where excesses and abuses can really come into play. But again, it's not disuse. We're going to go proper use. Think of Luke 10, 17. You'll see it with me. Jesus sent out these 72, 
and then they come back. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Jesus said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I've given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. Now, that's figurative language for the enemy, to be clear. And over all the power of the enemy, nothing at all will harm you. However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So it's great that you're able to, to rebuke the enemy in Jesus' name, but greater than that is that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, that you are his. That's greater. But we can't get past the reality that these are 72 normal disciples of Jesus. People that resist this usually are like, well, that's, that's Jesus or that's the apostles. They had the authority to do those things. That, that, that shouldn't be expected for us. These are 72 typical, uh, normal disciples of Jesus that he gave them authority to minister and to rebuke the enemy like Jesus did. Authority simply means delegated power. So not only the responsibility, but also the spiritual power to enforce compliance. Sam Storm says, authority is the right and power to act and speak as if Jesus himself were present. So you see this, the enemy is subject to us in Jesus' name. Not, not, not like uh, uh, the sons of Sceva, right? That, that get real amped up. We're like, ooh, we heard about this, this thing. We can, we, can, we can be traveling exorcists. The only time the word is used in the New Testament is exorcist. That should give you some help of like, that's dumb, right? The whole movie's dumb, exorcist. And so is trying to be a traveling exorcist is dumb without Jesus. Because what? We see the spiritual warfare happen where the demonic, the demons, empower the people to fight back, have supernatural strength, and beat up the sons of Sceva, strip them naked, and send them running. Jesus, I know, Paul, I've heard of, who are you? Right? You don't have authority in yourself. You have authority delegated to you by Jesus. The enemy is subject to us in Jesus' name. Christ has delegated us his authority in this war against the enemy. This is why I would recommend, yes, pray for God to do a good work in us, but then you exercise your authority in Christ. It would be, what's that? I don't know the book, but it's the idea of like uh, the boss tells you to do something, you turn around and you tell the boss to do something. Meaning, God has told us to preach the gospel, so it'd be very weird to, for us to pray, God, would you preach the gospel to my neighbor? Same thing here. He's given you authority in his name to rebuke the enemy. It's, it's a bit strange to say, Lord, would you rebuke the enemy? And God's like, I gave you the authority to do that. I've equipped you to do this, to resist the enemy. Neil Anderson states, spiritual warfare is not a horizontal tug of war, but a vertical chain of command. This is not a back and forth between us and the enemy with our power. This is a chain of command. Jesus is in authority. 
Jesus reigns over all. And he's delegated, delegated this authority to us. Now, by ourselves and our own power, we don't stand a chance. But in Christ, in our identity in him, and in the authority of the risen Lord, the enemy is the defeated group. You are in Christ, who is over all. The enemy is beneath you in Jesus' name. So when you discern the enemy's lies and presence, command them to leave in Jesus' name and never return. I'll tell you a quick story. When we do redemption groups, and we've done them in the past, I think I've done it for like 11 years now. Uh, I have some of the most horrific, visceral, reacting dreams of my life. I actually typically never remember any dreams, wake up with any of them, but leading up into this kind of intense counseling and care for other people, the enemy gives me these horrific dreams that uh, I won't go into detail. It's always graphic and violent in nature, and it always leaves me waking up feeling shameful. Like, I really did that? Like, I feel like I did it because it felt so real. And if I don't confess that to someone else, and rebuke that in Jesus' names, that, that shame from a dream lingers with me throughout the day. Throughout the day. Why? Because it's one of the enemy's tactics. Why? To separate me from God. Because if I have this lingering sense of shame from something I didn't even do, I, I won't run to him. I'll be less likely to talk about him, to share the gospel with others, to love others, to move towards others in love. So command in the name of Jesus, go away and never return. Your kids' nightmares, your kids' visions, your kids' things that they're hearing, the stuff in your house. I'll just read these for you. Matthew 17, 18, that Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And from that moment, the boy was healed. Mark 1, 25, Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. Mark 9, 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Acts 16, 18, Paul was greatly annoyed. Turning to the spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. Exercise your authority in Christ and command the enemy to flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee. So in all of this, we are to submit to God and resist the devil. Trusting, banking on, knowing that he will flee from you. And so family, we've been really going after making war against the sin in our hearts and our lives the past few weeks. But, but can I invite you to the other aspect of the war and that war against the enemy of your soul so that you would stand against and oppose. Fight, resist, and forgiveness, believing the truth, embracing your identity, exercising your authority, Let's fight and stand together, especially in our conflict. 
In Ephesians 6, Paul goes on to say, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. Your spouse is not your problem. Instead of facing your spouse and fighting them, why don't you stand together shoulder to shoulder and face the sin in each of you and face the enemy against you? That's who you're fighting. That's who we're fighting. So let's stand against, let's oppose, let's resist. Father, I pray you would take all of this and use it for your good. I pray for those that have been harassed by the enemy, even in this sermon. Lord, I, I pray that this person would hear of forgiveness and their identity, and they'd walk in that, and they would rebuke the enemy in Jesus' names, and, and the enemy would flee from them. I pray that they would be freed from that harassment, that oppression. And Lord, I, I pray that we would pick up these weapons and fight and not deny the existence of the enemy or be ignorant of the schemes of the enemy. Lord, would you remind us that we're in a war? A war that has decisively been conquered by the risen Lord. But that we're still in a war, fighting a defeated foe who's still trying to pull us down as he is headed towards eternal judgment. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.